Welcome to History Class After Hours. I'm Joseph Barra, and joining me is someone new, Matthew. Hi, I'm Matthew. Hi, Matthew. Hi, Mr. Barra. Thank you for joining us. Of course. Are you excited? Pleasure. I'm thrilled. For your first, your first time on the podcast? I, I'm exalted. Uh, you're, yes. you're, you're added to a long list of dignitaries that have sat in that very desk. Honored. In our fancy recording studio. <laughs> All right, so today we are going to talk about a man whose name is George Armstrong Custer. What do you know about Custer? Um, basically, the extent of my knowledge was that he had a last stand at Little Bighorn, and that's about it. All right, well, you're going to learn a lot more about George Armstrong Custer, and today we're going to kind of look at uh, him prior to the Battle of Little Bighorn, and you'll get a good understanding of him as a person and why what happened there makes a whole lot of sense. Okay. We're going to hear this term ego a lot. <laughs> All right. So George Armstrong Custer was born in New Rumley, Ohio, to Emmanuel and his second wife, Marie. His father was a farmer and a blacksmith. Um, at an early age, Custer would show toughness. Um, he had to have, this was said about him, he had to have a tooth drawn, and he was very much afraid of blood. Uh, when I took him to the doctor to have the tooth pulled, it, it was in the night, and I told him it bled well, it would get well right away, and he must be a good soldier. When he got to the doctor, he took his seat and the pulling began. The forceps slipped off and he had to make a second trial. He pulled it out and Audie, that was his nickname that his family gave him, Audie. So you may hear that name from time to time. Never even scrunched. Going home, I led him by the arm. He jumped and skipped and he said, Father, you and me can whip all the wigs in Michigan. Remember, political party. What were the wigs known for? I have no idea. They were the counter to the Democrats. I thought that was saying a good deal, but I did not contradict him. So that was from his father. In 1857, Custer would go to West Point as a member of the class of 1862. He is going to graduate absolute last in his class. Uh, he would record a total of 726 demerits, which is one of the worst behavior records in the Academy's history still to this day. Impressive. To show his willingness to push boundaries and rules without thinking of consequences, he just was always kind of pushing the envelope, seeing what he could get away with. It was said, on the surface he appeared attentive and respectful, but underneath the mind boiled with disruptive <laughs> ideas. So he always looked like he was paying attention, but he was just thinking of what, what kind of practical joke he could play next, things like that. I guess he was quite the jokester. One classmate would say, Custer declared, there were only two places in class, the head and the foot. And since I have no desire to be the head, I'll aspire to be the foot. So he's like purposely tanking his West Point career. In a normal situation, Custer probably would have found himself in an obscure posting with no chance of promotion upon graduation because of his low rank. However, he is going to catch a break. The outbreak of the American Civil War. Why is that a break for him? Um because they need leadership quickly. they need generals and officers because half of them just went to the south so that allows him to get his foot in the door so at the outbreak of the war custer would be commissioned as a second lieutenant and assigned the second u.s cavalry so cavalry in the civil war typically we think of like riding around on horses and getting in like these sword fights and things like right. that they really didn't do much <laughs> um 
They very rarely fought heavily. They were used primarily just for reconnaissance, reconnaissance protecting supply lines, and raiding easy targets. Other than that, you don't really hear about a bunch of like large cavalry battles. Um, he's going to miss a good chunk of the war early on, though, because he gets sick. Um, but Custer himself is always looking to, to be noticed. On May 24th, 1862, during the pursuit of Confederate, Confederate General Joseph E. Johnson up the peninsula, so this is part of the peninsula, peninsula campaign that George McClellan is going to botch, shockingly, and his staff were reckon, uh, looking for a potential crossing point on the Chickahominy River. They stopped, and Custer overheard General John B. Bernard mutter, I wish I knew how deep it is. Custer dashed forward on his horse out to the middle of the river, turned to the astonished officer and shouted triumphantly, McClellan, that's how deep it is, General. That is exactly the kind of man you want in Civil War leadership. <laughs> I'm just going to go to the river. <laughs> Custer would then lead a raid in which would capture 50 Confederates, and he will seize the first battle flag of the war for the North. The raid is going to draw the attention of then-commander of the Army of the Potomac, George McClellan, who would say it was a very valiant effort. So he's making a name for himself, and it, it's, you're kind of seeing this trend already that he is going to do crazy stuff to get noticed, like outside-the-box stuff. By 1863, he became aide to Lieutenant Colonel Pleasanton, who was in command of the Cavalry Corps of the Army of the Potomac. Custer would say, I do not believe a father could love his son more than General Pleasanton loves me. <laughs> Once again, ego. He's, he's a little kind full of, of himself. Little full of himself. All right. So Custer is really going to get on the national radar during the Gettysburg campaign. Um, so the U.S. Cavalry was in charge of locating the Army of Northern Virginia as it starts invasion north in June of 1863. So just a little bit of the ba background. Both armies were basically in Fredericksburg, Virginia. The Union Army just sat there. The Confederate Army left and got about a week head start on the Union Army. And then there was a mountain range between the Union Army and the Confederate Army. And the Union Army really had no clue where the Confederate Army was. So the Cavalry, once again, reconnaissance, their job is to try to find out where they are. Um, so at this point, Custer was given command of the Michigan Cavalry Brigade. Their nickname would be the Wolverines. At 23, he'd become one of the youngest generals in the Army. Uh, first order of business was to order himself a custom uniform. Because, you know, fighting the Confederates isn't the number one priority. Making myself look good is the number one priority. What kind of uniform did he order? Uh, so, um, <coughs> it's going to have, like, the typical Union frock coat. But there's going to be like a, almost like a denim shirt underneath it with like a big collar that goes <laughs> over the top of the frock coat. And it's like laced like on the edges. Okay. When you think of like a stereotypical like cowboy like outfit from like 1950s, 60s movies, that's what it kind of looked like. Ah. Most of his contemporaries would say his uniforms were gaudy. Um, historian Tom Carhart would say, a showy uniform for Custer was one of command presence on the battlefield. He wanted to be readily, readily distinguishable at first glance from all other soldiers. He intended to lead from the front, and to him it was a cru crucial issue of unit morale that his men be able to look up in the middle of a charge or at any other time in the battlefield and instantly see him leading them into danger. So he wanted to be noticed, even on the battlefield. He basically said that Custer wanted his men to be able to see him, so they're like, if he can do it, I can do it, let's all go forward. So 
So at the first day of the Battle of Gettysburg, remember there's three, um, after the first day ended, Custer was given orders for July 2nd. He was to disrupt Confederate communications and harass their supply lines. In doing this, he came in contact with Confederate cavalry under Jeb Stuart, uh, which had been missing. So Lee didn't know where his own cavalry was during the whole campaign, and that's a whole different story. Won't get into it, but it caused problems. Custer rode along ahead to investigate and found that rebels were unaware of the arrival of his troops. Returning to his men, he carefully positioned them along both sides of the road where they would be hidden from the rebels. Further along the road behind a low rise, he positioned the 1st and 5th Michigan Cavalry and his artillery under the command of Lieutenant Alexander Cummings McWerther Pennington Jr. What a name. That's a name. Yeah. That is a name and a half. To bait his trap, he gathered a troop, 6th Michigan Cavalry, called out, Come on, boys, I'll lead you this time, and galloped directly at the unsuspecting rebels. As he had expected, the rebels, more than 200 horsemen, came racing down the country road after Custer and his men. So basically what he's done is he's put his guys on the side of the road. Him and the small unit of men are going to ride towards the Confederate cavalry, get close enough to them, and then they're going to go back to where his men are waiting to ambush them. That's the plan. He's going to lose half his men in the deadly rebel fire. His horse is going to get shot, leaving him to run away by foot. So it doesn't go very well. Uh, he was rescued by Private Norvell Francis Churchill of the 1st Michigan Cavalry, who galloped up, shot Custer's nearest assailant, and pulled Custer up behind him. That guy deserves a medal. American hero. Uh -huh. So Custer and his remaining men reached safety, while the pursu uh, pursuing rebels were cut down by slashing rifle fire, then canister from six guns. Canister fire is like where you make a cannon into a giant shotgun. It's like a coffee can, and it's got a bunch of, like, inch round metal balls in it. That's horrifying. Yes, it's very nasty Not stuff. Not good. Custer would have a short memory, though, and achieve one of his finest hours the next day. On day three of the battle, Custer would find himself involved in one of the largest cavalry conflicts of the Civil War. About 2,700 Union cavalrymen would square up against 6,000 Confederates on what is now known as East Cavalry Field. Um, <clears throat> so the Custer would launch a counter charge against the Confederates as they were steamrolling towards Union lines. He's going to yell, come on you Wolverines. The Confederate advance was stopped. And there's kind of two different views on what the Confederates were trying to accomplish. Um, one view that's not widely accepted is that they were supposed to at the time of Pickett's charge, they were supposed to come in from the back and kind of sandwich the Union lines. Most people think that Pickett's charge was supposed to happen and they were supposed to go around the back to like go after everyone retreating. But anyway, they're going to be stopping their tracks. Custer's brigade lost 257 men at Gettysburg, the highest loss of any Union cavalry brigade, and he would state, I challenge the annals of warfare to produce a more brilliant or successful charge of cavalry. Are, are, are people not starting to realize at this point that he's a little, you know, aggressive? Well, he, he's, he's, he's getting results, though. Well, but at what cost? Okay, all right. All right. Okay. 
Good point. <laughs> uh, so for gallant and uh, for gallantry and other services, he was awarded a regular army brevet promotion to major. <laughs> brevet promotion just means you're major. We're going to give you the title major, but you don't get any of like the pay and stuff yet. You still got to get uh, Congress has still got to approve that. So during the remainder of the war, Custer would go, then go on to participate in Sheridan's campaign in the Shenandoah Valley. The Shenandoah Valley is like the breadbasket of uh, Virginia. And Sheridan had taken a page out of one of his friends, Sherman's playbook, and would specifically target the civilian population in what would become known as the burning. They just basically burnt down the Shenandoah Valley. Uh, Custer distinguished himself by actions at Waynesboro, Dinwiddie Courthouse, and at Five Forks. Uh, his division blocked Lee's retreat on the final day, and he received the first flag of truce from the Confederate force. After a truce was arranged, Custer was escorted through the lines to meet James, uh, James Longstreet, who was one of he was Lee's right-hand man, who described Custer as having flaxen locks flowing over his shoulders. And Custer said, in the name of General Sheridan, I demand the unconditional surrender of this army. Longstreet replied that this was not, uh, he was not in command of the army, but if he was, he would not deal with messages from Sheridan. <laughs> Custer responded, it would be a pity to have more blood upon the field, to which Longstreet suggested the truce be respected, and then added, General Lee has gone to meet General Grant, and it is for them to determine the future of the armies. So Custer was trying to get the official surrender of the Army of Northern Virginia by himself. And then Longstreet's like, this ain't my army. I don't have that authority. And Custer, then, yeah. Must have been some pretty persuasive hair. <laughs> Good knocks. Uh, Custer was present at the surrender of Appomattox Courthouse, and the table upon which the surrender was signed was presented to him as a gift for his wife by Sheridan. Uh, who included a note to her praising Cut, uh, Custer's gallantry. She treasured the gift of the historical table, which is now at the Smithsonian Institute of American History. By the end of the Civil War, he would reach the rank of Major General. So then comes Reconstruction, and Reconstruction does not go very well for him. He was put in charge of a cavalry division of the military division of the Gulf, um, it was made primarily of cavalry veterans from the Western Theater. So during the Civil War, you had the Eastern Theater and the Western Theater, and there was kind of a rivalry between the two. And also, the states involved were different. Like, so the states involved primarily in the Eastern Theater were mainly like New York, Pennsylvania, all those New England states, things like that. Western Theater would have been like Wisconsin, Illinois, all those states out there. Um, the job was to go to Austin, Texas and oversee Reconstruction. There he almost had a full mutiny of his troops. They were upset over their continued campaigning. They basically wanted out. And they were also upset about being disciplined by an Eastern general that they considered a vain dandy. What an insult. I love insults back then. They're just like, okay. Yeah. Uh, they would eventually be mustered out or taken out of active duty on, in November of 1865. However, things were so bad that several members of the 2nd Wisconsin Cavalry planned to ambush Custer and assassinate him on his way home. His Luckily own. for Custer, though, he was warned and avoided the ambush. So then Custer is going to get involved in the Indian Wars. So in February of 1866, Custer would muster out of the army and would take an extended leave of absence. 
He went to New York where he considered careers in railroads and mining. He was even offered $10,000 in gold to be a general in the army of Benito Juarez of Mexico, who was fighting the French at that point. Remember Maximilian? Yep. The French took over Mexico. Classic French. But then, like, uh, pretty much the U.S. government said, yeah, we don't hire out our generals. We oppose this, sir. I wouldn't put it past him. Nah, yeah. yeah. He'd just be like, okay, whatever. I'm going. <laughs> uh, after, though, his father-in-law died, he would return to Michigan and would reconsider uh, running for Congress. He was in favor of moderation when dealing with the South. So, obviously, he is a supporter of Andrew Johnson, then president who was wanted uh, basically reconciliation. And would travel with him to help build up Johnson's policies during Reconstruction. This would be called the Swing Around the Circle. At one point, Custer confronted a small group of Ohio men who repeatedly jeered Johnson, saying to them, I was born two miles and a half from here, but I am ashamed of you. Burns. Wow. He knows where to hit them. Yeah, like I for said, sure. cut downs back then were just. <laughs> Sir, you wear a funny hat. Oh. <laughs> Lost a little bit of luster over the years. In July of 1866, Custer would find himself back in the Army, this time at, as lieutenant colonel of the newly created 7th Cavalry. Uh, he would serve frontier duty in Scout, Colorado, and Kansas. He would then take part in General Winfield Scott Hancock's expedition against the Cheyenne. On June 26, Lieutenant Lyman Kidder's party, made up of 10 troopers and one scout, were massacred while en route to Fort Wallace. Uh, Lieutenant Kidder was supposed to deliver dispatches to Custer from General Sherman, but his party was attacked by Lakota Sioux and Cheyenne. Days later, Custer and a search party found the bodies of Kidder's patrol. During this campaign, Custer would rebrand himself from being boy general to quote-unquote buckskin-clad Indian fighter. Did anybody else call him that? Uh, the papers were. Papers, like, fell in love with him. So he is getting all this press now for what he's doing in the West. And what you know about Custer? He's getting press. He's going to want more press. Yeah. He's going to keep on trying to get more and more. Yeah, um, so as his popularity grew, so did his ego. Following the campaign, Custer would then be arrested though at Fort Leavenworth for being AWOL. You know what AWOL stands for? No. Absent without leave. Okay. So he didn't have permission to leave. But what happened was there was a cholera outbreak, and he was afraid of, like, his wife was going to get it. So he left the army to go, like, find his wife to, like, go get her out of the Midwest. That's touching. Custer was court-martialed and found guilty on eight counts, including ordering several deserters to be shot without benefit of a hearing and being absent without leave from his command by going to find his wife, Libby. So he shot people for doing the same thing he just did. Upholding American ideals. Mm -hmm. For the most part, the charges would be dropped because Major General Sheridan wanted him to launch another campaign against the Cheyenne. Uh, the campaign was going to be successful in pu pushing the Cheyenne into a reservation. Custer would use total war tactics against them, meaning anybody was a target. Who did he learn that from? Sherman. Yes, yes. Sherman and Sheridan. All right. So basically he's taking what he learned in the Shenandoah Valley and he's bringing it to Native Americans. Custer's confidence would continue to grow when, in most cases, the Cheyenne would flee upon his approach. So he is starting to get this idea that as long as I run at them with my horses, they run away. Keep that in mind. Uh, he would then be sent to the Dakota Territory to protect a railroad survey uh, park party against the Lakota. 
Uh, here he would lead the expedition into the Black Hills and announce to the world the discovery of gold. This in turn caused the Black Hills Gold Rush, which would ensue and help lead to the establishment of the notorious lawless town of Deadwood. If you don't know about Deadwood, Deadwood was a town that was outside of the jurisdiction of the United States government, so therefore there literally was no law. And HBO did a miniseries on it, and it's really good, but it's really inappropriate. <laughs> I can imagine. They use a lot of naughty words, I among other imagine. things. It's just de it's debauchery. <laughs> All right. Conflict with Grant. In 1875, Grant administration attempted by the black, uh, to buy the Black Hills from the Sioux. They refused to sell and were then ordered to report to the reservation. The winter weather conditions, though, made that impossible. The Sioux were then labeled as hostiles, and the Army was tasked with taking them to the reservation. What do you know about Grant's president presidency? Nothing. Very, very corrupt. His presidency is considered like one of the most corrupt ever. He's also ranked as one of the worst presidents ever because of that. Because he pretty much just had cronies all around him and he was completely oblivious to all of it. And they just like. Just, that's corruption, great. bribery, all that stuff. Yeah. So the plan is going to call for a three prong assault with Custer coming from the east, a guy by the name of John Gibbon coming from the west, and a guy by the name of George Crook coming from the south to basically encircle the suit. While Custer was getting ready for the campaign, though, he was summoned to D.C. to testify in a corruption trial against then Secretary of War William Belknap. So Grant was getting ready to run for a third term, and the Democrats had had enough of the corruption, and they started to put people on trial in front of Congress. So Belknap is going to be one of them. What Belknap was doing was selling lucrative trading post monopolies on the frontier. So basically you had all these forts on the frontier and there'd be like one supply store and he was selling those rights to people and pocketing all the money. He's like, hey, Bob, you want to own that? Because you'll be able to make lots of money because you're the only people they could buy from. It's like, yeah, give me like 20 grand first then. I'll give you the store. Like a... A pyramid scheme. Kind of. Yeah. All right. Custer was reluctant to go to D.C. because he did not want to miss the campaign. He asked to answer questions in writing instead. Custer also knew his testimony would be explosive because he had dealt with Belknap personally, and he had seen <laughs> what was going on. Custer, however, would be forced to go to D.C., where his testimony was praised by Democrats and criticized by Republicans. He would even go on to attack Grant's brother. So Grant now has a vendetta against him. After Custer testified, Belknap was impeached and the case sent to the Senate for trial. Custer asked the impeachment managers to release him from further testimony. With the help of a request from his superior, Brigadier General Alfred Terry, commander of the Department of Dakota, he's going to be excused, but Grant is going to block the order and block Custer from leaving by appointing another officer to take his place, saying, your place is now here in D.C. to be part of this trial. Well... Custer don't like that. <laughs> Sherman's going to try to intervene and tell Custer, go meet with Grant and you two hash it out. He's going to ask for meetings with Grant three times and all three times Grant refuses. Finally, Custer takes matters into his own hands and just gets on a train and leaves for Chicago. Grant doesn't like this and he's furious. So he has um, officers waiting for him in Chicago and they arrest him upon arrival. The public is outraged. They began calling Grant a modern Caesar. 
Not a good comparison. Basically saying, you don't have that authority. What are you doing, sir? Just because some guy made, said bad things about your brother, you don't have the right to arrest him. Grant eventually relented. And he's going to put General Cherry in charge, Terry in charge of the expedition that uh, Custer was supposed to be in charge of. But he's going to allow Custer to be part of Terry's um, unit. All right. Does he get to keep the uniform? He does get to keep the uniform. Good. So feeling the pressure of the decision and also fearful that a failed campaign would hurt him politically, Grant put Custer back in lead, but once again, under the direct supervision of Terry. So what he's seeing is Custer has this pub, there's this public opinion of Custer that he is the, the best Indian fighter. All right. So the, the public believes he is the best man for the job. Now, because of Grant's personal conflict with them, he has removed Custer from the job and put this guy, Terry, in charge. Well, Cust uh, Grant's now looking at, well, if Terry fails, everybody's going to point at me saying, it's your fault, Custer should have been leading the army. But because of your personal vendetta, you did not allow that to happen. All right. So Custer is all happy, and as he gets to meet with Terry, he is quoted as saying, uh, he would cut loose from Terry and work independently. And that is exactly what he's going to do. So as Terry's unit leaves, Custer marches out ahead and he's never to be seen again by Terry. And that will lead us to the Battle of Little Bighorn. So join us next time as we learn about Custer's Last Stand. Thank you for tuning in to History Class After Hours, the show where we talk about the things your history teachers didn't have time to teach you. If you wanted to stay updated on upcoming events for the History Club, please visit www.starsmillhistoryc.wixsite.com forward slash 2020. If you liked this episode, please share it with your friends and subscribe to our channel on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Be on the lookout for new episodes, and we'll be posting every week. Until next time, stay curious.